Well, we've finally arrived at the last of the messages in the teachings of Jesus series. And the recent teachings have been illustrations around our understandings about the end of the age, about waiting and preparing, using our resources wisely, remaining faithful. And it all culminates in this final section of Matthew 25, which is encouragingly titled, encouragingly titled in most Bibles, The Final Judgment. Are you sitting comfortably? Uh, Maybe don't get too comfortable. Can we be too comfortable in church? Too comfortable outside the church? Comfortable. Well, I think the first thing to note is that this is not just another parable. This is prophecy. In this passage, Christ is trying to not so gently reminders of three things that are going to happen. And the first is judgment. Uh, You may have heard the old saying that the only things in this life that you can be sure of are death and taxes. Well, I'm sorry to have to tell you that there is another absolutely certain appointment that each of us will keep, and that is judgment. Each of us will eventually stand before Christ and be judged. Now we need to notice in this passage that Jesus separates the sheep from the goats. That's not the sheep from the wolves. Now, I'm a city boy. Uh, To me, sheep are gentle, quiet and innocent animals Sheep like to graze quietly, great fluffy lawnmowers, domesticated. Goats, on the other hand, can cause a lot of problems. They are scrawny, bad-tempered, beady-eyed, and generally unreliable. Goats like to browse on everything and anything they can get their teeth into. Now, goats certainly were a major part of Jewish life, from very early times, and they're recognized as a kosher animal, and they provided clothing and water and wineskins and tents. And yet, sheep are commonly used throughout the Bible to refer to God's people. The imagery and symbolism are strong and consistent. It's the Passover lamb, not the Passover kid. The lamb of God, the lion and the lamb, Worthy is the Lamb. And here Christ says that the sheep are the righteous, those who are born again believers in him. I used to think that righteous living had more to do with behavioral modification than heart transformation. Outward appearance of holiness matters rather than spirit-filled change. But righteousness actually produces good works, not the other way around. The goats are those who claim to be saved, but are not, who profess faith and then continue on as if nothing has happened. Sheep 
or goat. Which brings us to Christ's second point. In our Bible passage, Christ shows us that the ultimate mark of an authentic Christian is not denomination, creed, profession of faith, Bible knowledge, education, but the concern shown to those who are in need. The practical demonstration of love is the final proof. Verse 40 we read, The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Notice, Jesus does not ask anyone to present his case or argue his cause. He simply identifies himself with those in need. If you help them, you're helping him. The third point is that this should not be a surprise. The reaction of both the sheep and the goats to the Lord's words is surprise. Both groups expected a different basis of judgment, but the issue is already settled. Each person is simply told to which group they belong. See, the issue is about living faith. The sheep lived lives of genuine faith, producing fruit of good works, glorifying the name of Jesus, building God's kingdom here on earth. And the criterion that Jesus used was the response of the people to the cries of the human need that surrounded them. Now, we're getting into a delicate area. What Pastor Dan called last week the Protestant two-step shuffle. By no means was Jesus saying that the acts of kindness done by the sheep merit salvation. Salvation comes from the atonement of Jesus Christ. His sacrifice for your sins, my sins. Salvation is free and it comes when we accept Jesus as our saviour and accept his forgiveness of our sin. Salvation is received by faith. But salvation is demonstrated by works. And it's always through grace. Now I'm sure that the goats did what they thought were good works as well. But they were ultimately indifferent to Christ's love for all people. We can't afford to be indifferent towards Jesus and his return. We can't afford to be indifferent towards the Holy Spirit making us ready for Jesus' return. We can't afford to be indifferent towards the resources that God gives us. We can't afford to be indifferent towards the needy people all around us. The value of our works is based on the motive, who are you doing the works for? So, having said that, the question then becomes, what kind of lives would we need to live to be able to communicate the soul-saving, life-giving gospel 
to postmodern people in a changed and changing world. How do we think we're going to meet the high standard of Christ's judgment? All of us have a significant part to play in the evangelical task of the church. Sometimes even bearing witness within the church and not just outside it. But the purpose of the church, the purpose of our church here in Hobart, cannot be simply to survive or even to thrive. But it has, it has to be to serve. The church is not called to survive history, but to ser- serve humanity. The life of the church is the heart of God. And the heart of God is for us to serve a broken world. The serving that we are called to requires direct contact. You can't wash the feet of a dirty world if you refuse to touch it. Sometimes we see the church as a safe place for us. For many Christians facing this troubled world, there is a great temptation to want to retreat to safety behind our own front doors or the walls of the churches where things are familiar and safe. And we can throw up our hands in horror at the world and know that in our church everything will be the same. But the truth is, Jesus engages He engaged when he came to earth and he continues to engage with the reality of the world around us. And too often the church becomes our secure place, our haven from the outside world when it should be a refuge for the world, not from it. And yet... In Galatians 2.19 we read Paul saying, I have been nailed to the cross with Christ. I have died, but Christ lives in me. And I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. Or in Luke 14.26, Christ's words, You cannot be my disciple unless you love me. More than you love your father and mother, your wife and children, and your brothers and sisters. You cannot come with me unless you love me more than you love your own life. You cannot be my disciple unless you carry your own cross and come with me. You may have heard it said that the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. I was involved in prison ministry for eight years and I can confirm that you never quite get used to hearing the big heavy door locked behind you. There is some deep sense in that you are no longer safe if you can't run away. How could we ever think the Christian faith 
would be safe when its central metaphor is an instrument of death. If we believe that God's purpose or promise is that we will be safe from harm, we are surely disconnected from the movement and power of God. If we are looking to live out our Christianity only in a safe place, who do we think will lead the church into the dangerous places? Somehow we've missed the reality of the biblical experience. Perhaps another way of viewing the Christian life is to think of it as being supported by three elements working together. Uh, The first is spirituality. That's a good churchy sort of word, but what it really means is that we have to have an honest, authentic prayer and meditation life. We have to spend time with God in order to have a relationship with him. We have to recognize that special connection with God inside and take care of it, making sure it's still there, checking it out every day. Because if we lose our focus, we're in danger of losing our hold on Christ. And often we determine what we feel God needs and then pray about it instead of recognizing that prayer is the heartbeat of everything. Within our churches, we need people who are going to encourage and inspire us to pray, teach us to pray, move us out in prayer, and raise up the church. There is an opportunity to serve God today, to introduce a different kind of kingdom of justice and fruitfulness, one that is everlasting and eternal, rooted and grounded in prayer, and therefore a place of blessing. Where are the men or women who are going to stand in that gap and make a difference? The second element is ongoing discovery. And the foundation of discovery is our continuing study of the Bible, of Jesus' life, his teaching, and his way for us. We can read the Bible for ourselves, discuss it with other Christians, take advantage of study programs. But the question has to be asked, what value do we put on the word of God? How important is it to us? Really. For some Christians in the world, it's really important. As important as life itself. At the Keswick Convention in the UK in 2007, Clive Carver, who was then head of the World Relief Aid Agency, gave this illustration. I was in southern Sudan... No paved roads, no gas, no electricity, little clothing, almost no education, almost no medical assistance. They didn't even have a currency. They're still dealing in chickens and cows. And I'm in a village, and a lady brings me her 18-month-old daughter and lays her at my feet so we can watch the little girl die. 
to give you some context, it's the middle of the Sudanese famine. Twenty years of rolling famines, both natural and man-made. And by the year 2000, it was estimated that there were some 12 million people starving. The number of deaths unknown because it was just too great to count. And that's within our adult life. If you younger people think that the year 2000 is prehistoric and so of no relevance to you, I think you should know that currently the situation in East Africa is so poor that predictions are that this month there will be more than 23 million people at risk of starvation in that part of the world. Clive Carver goes on. I've never seen skeletons walking before. I have never seen anything like it. When you pick up a little baby in your hands, you are scared that you're going to break something. It's frightening and awful. I watch children die all day knowing we had got there too late. I had a chartered plane and I said to the pilot, get us out of here. And he took us 140 kilometers to a village called Leithnum. We were the fourth aeroplane ever to have landed at Leithnum. And normally such visitors would be expected to be greeted by the, the whole village choir on arrival. And there wasn't a soul in sight when we arrived, so we knew something was going on. And we found about 250 people sitting under a spreading tree. And in Africa, that's a religious meeting. And I said, what are you doing here? And they said... We're worshipping Jesus. Have you heard of him? And I said, yes, I have. And they said, he's heard of Jesus. This is wonderful. Uh, we've heard there's a book. You haven't seen it, have you? Yes, I, I've got one in the plane. And they said, he's seen the book. And I said, I've come from churches in other countries and people who love Jesus too and people who know the book and we are concerned about the way the children are dying and we want to bring you seed and teach you how to sow it and so that next year your children will not be starving to death. And they said, that's wonderful. Please say thank you. But could we have the book first? This story is not about Christian charity or even Christian love. It's about what priority we give to the place of God's word in our lives. What value do we put on God's word? The third element is Christian action. So we have spirituality, spending time with God, discovery, spending time with God's word in the Bible. And the third element is, of the Christian life is Christian action. We are to be Christ's hands and feet in a hurting world. Christ expects us to take his love for us and share it with others. Now, we're not all gifted evangelists, but we are called to be witnesses who model by word and deed the values of the kingdom in our everyday lives. We must still lovingly contend for the faith. The New Testament word for witness is the same as for martyr. 
We have come to know of martyrs who have died for their faith. They didn't survive, but they died facing the right direction. Around the world, Christian families, tribes and communities have been persecuted, brutalized and killed for their faith. We have an example of this in our own church community through the life, mission and death of Stan Dale in Papua New Guinea, which is recorded by his son Rodney in one of our citywide story videos. These Christians didn't survive, yet they left a witness. How serious are we really about our witness in Mornington, in Lena Valley, in Hobart, Tasmania? Clive Carver gives another illustration. He says, I was bouncing my way on a truck in Ethiopia for eight hours without coming across a single road. We got to a small village where I had been told there was a church. And there was an African woman sitting on the floor playing with two children by her feet. And as we got talking, I I said, who who are you? And, And she said, I'm the pastor's wife. And I said, great, where's your husband? And she said, he's not here, he's preaching Jesus in the next door village. And I said, wonderful. How long have you been here? Oh, just over a year. And what happened to your predecessor? Oh, they killed him. Who killed him? Oh, the villagers. Um, he came preaching this strange God, Jesus, and he was here for two to three years. And people were coming to Jesus, but the rain stopped and the food ran out. And when the famine came, the people tried everything and so they finally decided that it was because the gods were angry because they had started following another god. So they took the pastor and killed him to appease the gods. So I looked at this beautiful African woman playing with her children and I said, so what are you doing here? Why did you and your husband come? And she looked at me like I was some sort of imbecile, and said, we're Christians. This is what Christians do, isn't it? In that little village and its surrounding area, the church has trebled in numbers because people who are ready to lay down their lives for this Jesus. In the 2016 census in Australia, there were 1,622 people homeless in Tasmania. And that doesn't include those couch surfing, sharing with other families, sleeping in their cars. I'll leave it to you to imagine what that number may be now. The Hobart Women's Shelter currently has to turn away 70% of the women who have come to them seeking help to leave violent domestic situations because there are no resources available to help them. As we've heard, there's a pressing need for foster care of children in this state. Less than half of the children requiring out-of-home care in Tasmania have foster families. 85% of those in foster care have been in out-of-home care for more than a year. Where are our priorities today? How are we going in the sheep versus goats equation? It doesn't matter whether it's Ethiopia or Tasmania. We are called 
commanded to share God's love for us with those around us. And whenever we demonstrate that Christian love, we've got to reveal where that love comes from. It doesn't come from the sympathy of, the, of our hearts. It comes from the Lord of our lives, who lives in us and gives us that love that comes from his heart. It's crucified love that we share. You can't have crucified love without a cross. The credibility of the Christian message will only be secured if we're living it out. And then Christianity will not then be religious theory or spiritual speculation. It will be proved to be a dynamic reality that transforms lives. You can't argue with a transformed life. Where is grace in the world going to come from if it's not the grace of God working in the lives of his people? The great opponent of Christianity, Friedrich Nietzsche, said, if I am to become a Christian, then the Christians must look a lot more like Jesus Christ. Following Jesus is a dangerous undertaking. He was willing to die on our behalf. The father was not only willing to let his son die, but he commanded it. The only way we can truly follow Christ is to die to ourselves and to live for him. It's not a coincidence that baptism is a water grave depicting death and resurrection. It's no less significant that our communion sacrament is a reminder of sacrifice. How did we ever develop a safe theology from such a dangerous faith? Unless we say no to our self-will, we cannot know the depth of God's will. Unless we are willing to die to self, we cannot know our true selves. And we cannot discover the life of God. In Philippians 1.21, Paul wrote, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. In 1 John 4.11, we read, Dear friends, if this is the way God loved us, we must also love each other. And to do this, we need to understand that the love of Christ in action cannot simply be a thing that only applies within the church. It has to be a demonstrated love to the world, where the world is, where people are, where they are living, where they are hurting, where we are living and hurting every day, in the workplace, in our lives, in their lives. I need to examine my heart, maybe you yours. Has our experience of God become form, system, ritual, tradition? Has the reality disappeared? This prophecy makes it very clear. It is a choice for each one of us. Sheep or goat? 
All of us are invited to a fresh experience of the outrageous grace of God. Cleansing, healing, restoring, empowering our chains of slavery snapped. We can experience the amazing freedom of his grace and the reality of his power. And the true fruit of the spirit of God can be seen resident and evident in the lives and communities of his people. But for this, we need to put the desires of our own hearts to one side. And take up our cross and truly follow Christ's example. Only dead men can follow the God of the cross. Those who have put to death their own desires in favour of God's will. Pick up your cross. That remarkable young woman, Anne Frank, wrote, The final forming of a person's character lies in their own hands. Are you still sitting comfortably? It's in your hands. Sheep or goat. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for bringing us to this place to be your people. Lord, we are yours. We are transformed. We want to make a difference for you. Thank you for blessing our lives. Forgive us the times when we miss opportunities to show your compassion in the world. Open our hearts to our neighbours and to all your creation, not in fear of your judgment, but out of love for you. Lord, when the time comes to separate the sheep from the goats, we want to be sheep grouped with the sheep. Perhaps at this time you may want to pause and take a moment to consider where you are in this sheep and goat equation. Perhaps your heart has been moved by the Holy Spirit. Perhaps you need to reset your current direction. If you would like to acknowledge or reaffirm the Lordship of Christ in your life, then I invite you to pray after me silently or openly as you wish Lord I pray that I will live my life fully surrendered to you trusting in you and following you for the rest of my days on this earth and I look forward to spending an eternity with you in heaven Amen.